Hello, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mount Sinai Health Partners podcast. I'm Rob Fields, Chief Population Health Officer here at Mount Sinai. And today I have Jonathan DePiro, uh, who is the Clinical Director of the Center for Stress Resili Resilience and Personal Growth here at Mount Sinai. Um, so thank you for joining us, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. So, um, Jonathan, we're, we decided to have this podcast um, uh, now uh, because of Suicide Prevention Month and sort of bringing awareness uh, to suicide as a as a really public health issue, um, and in particular in healthcare, which I know is something you're particularly interested in. I, I would wonder if you, you don't mind sharing a bit about how you came to the work that you do today and the work that you do at the center specifically. Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist. So I got my PhD from the New School in Lower Manhattan. And during graduate school, I spent a lot of time studying the effects of trauma on the body, how people physiologically respond after traumatic events, especially after many traumatic events that they've experienced, how it shapes their view of the world, their view of themselves. And during graduate school and after I graduated uh, with my PhD, I worked with 9-11 responders. So starting in grad school, then with my postdoctoral work, and then starting as faculty at Mount Sinai, worked with first responders who went down to ground zero, um, who were there that morning when the attacks happened and went many months afterwards to help with the recovery effort. And in that work, I learned a lot about resilience and a lot about the impact of long-term trauma on how people are doing, on their functioning, on their day-to-day -day well-being conditions like PTSD, depression, anxiety. Um, and that really um, pushed me forward and gave me a lot of good experience to draw on during the pandemic um, and helped, um, helped contribute to some of the things that we're doing in our Center for Stress Resilience and Personal Growth. Yeah, it's, it's a, the unfortunate piece of, I mean, about lots of sort of global traumas like but 9-11 certainly offered uh, unfortunately a, a tremendous opportunity i guess to study that effect on a on a large bolus of people in a really localized area i know that um the even sinai has been a leader in that space in terms of caring for folks post 9-11 for you know the obviously the decades afterwards what are you know I, i've been interested a lot of folks in the pop health world are often interested in the effects of trauma on on chronic conditions. And I don't know how much of that was part of your research or just maybe peripherally as you're, you're studying treatment, how, how you have seen that play out perhaps in your 9-11 patients. Yeah, so we've actually learned a lot over the past two decades from working with 9-11 responders. We, uh, are the program, the Mount Sinai World Trade Center Health Program is federally funded and it has a monitoring component. So every year responders come in for a checkup, even if they're doing fine, they get a checkup with various physical health measures and mental health measures. If they have a medical condition that comes up related to their health, their environmental exposure, it's treated. And if they have a mental health condition related to their exposure down at ground zero, the psychological trauma they witnessed, it's treated within the program. So that's actually quite a bit of data and it allows for many, many research questions and a richer clinical understanding. So one of the things that we know from 9-11 on the mental health side is that at least one in 10, but probably more World Trade Center responders have post-traumatic stress disorder related to the work they did at ground zero related to seeing human suffering up close, the life threat they experienced themselves, 
loss of friends and colleagues, um, and then having to handle body parts um, and human remains in the many months afterwards as they went down and down and down again. Um, so that's something we know. We, we see similar rates of depression that's been chronic over these many years, anxiety and alcohol misuse. And on the medical side, on the physical health side, due to the dust exposure, we see elevated rates of aerodigestive conditions, so acid reflux, respiratory conditions. There's now approximately 70 cancers that have been related or associated to 9-11 dust exposure, including prostate cancer, different kinds of lung cancers. Mm. So there's a lasting physical and mental health impact of the uh, of 9-11 on many tens, if not hundreds of thousands of responders, but also survivors who were living and working in the area. Um, it did afford us a window into best practices that sort are of developing at that time. Colleagues of mine were involved in developing at that time, you know, a program of what to do at that moment. And it informed what we do now. Um, but it's also, it shows just the lasting impact of trauma on physical health. There's also plenty of other, other studies outside of 9-11 that link trauma and PTSD to things like heart disease, um, trauma, lifetime trauma, including childhood trauma to um, risk of intravenous drug use, risk of developing different kinds of cancer conditions and immune function over time. Um, the work done of the adverse childhood experiences studies you're probably uh, the, familiar with. Yeah, very much. So. Um, there's a whole host of research that shows that trauma has a significant and even immediate effect on biological functioning um, and, and should be treated uh, like a medical illness because it is. It affects the physical body. I imagine uh, a lot of this work is what all of you do every day at the center. If you could talk a little bit before we get into the the core topic, but um, a little bit about the center and the your focus really um, among healthcare workers. Yeah. So the center was developed about um, 16 months ago, and it was an initiative of our dean at our School of Medicine, Dr. Dennis Charney, who is a world expert in trauma and resilience. And he saw the impact right away of the pandemic on healthcare workers within our health system, all over 45,000 healthcare workers of various roles, and saw a need for a center that provided on the ground support to those healthcare workers to supplement efforts that are already underway. Um, during the pandemic and even after the pandemic's over to be a support to support the resilience of the healthcare workers by giving them evidence-based tools to boost their resilience uh, to provide treatment if necessary to be present on units to tell them that help is available to go face to face and, and meet them in person make that personal connection so we've done a number of different things in even our first little bit over a year of operation we used the work of Dr. Charney, his colleague, Dr. Stephen Southwick, and others to build a curriculum of resilience workshops. So in these workshops, healthcare workers learn tools to boost resilience that they can apply in their lives that are based in science. And we've done 140 of these workshops over the past year with over 300 healthcare workers. Um, and we've actually now integrated these into residency and fellowship programs throughout the health system. So training doctors get these tools as part of their training. And that's how important it's it's been viewed. Uh, we all also offer up to 14 sessions of behavioral health care to any Mount Sinai employee. 
Um, so using our best practices from cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal psychotherapy, and medication management as needed, our healthcare workers are immediately able to access without any wait time, a high quality behavioral health care to respond to the need that they have. We know that access to care is often an issue. Cost of care is actually an issue. Uh, And we've We've worked with our institution, leaders in the institution, to reduce, if not eliminate, any out-of-pocket cost for our healthcare workers receiving care at our center. That's amazing. I, I think that, you know, from a pop health perspective, we're often in the business of identifying high-risk individuals mm-hmm. among a bigger population, right? And then designing programs that meet the needs of those of those segments, right? Instead of, we often talk about stratification, but more importantly, perhaps it's the segmentation, right? Because everyone yes. needs something a little different. Healthcare workers are, you know, a, a different breed. And even within healthcare workers, you have physicians, you have nurses, you have the, um, you know, environmental services staff, you have all the different facets of healthcare. But um, I imagine that uh, the, the specialized approach that you're taking, knowing the employees as well as you do, is probably helpful. Um, but I, I think it would be surprising for a lot of listeners to know some of the baseline. Well, what's the baseline level of trauma? Even before the pandemic, there were issues. And I think that would be surprising to folks. I wonder if you might speak a little bit to maybe pre-pandemic, pre-center, what was the state of things around, among healthcare workers? And, and then we can talk about the effects of the pandemic on top. And I, th- I think it's important before we get into the details of the day-to-day of healthcare workers and the variety of exposures to acknowledge that they're people, they're human beings, mm-hmm. um, and they're human beings who did train for their profession in a lot of cases, like lots of specialty training for physicians and nurses. Uh, other healthcare workers see human suffering, but that might not have been part of their training, like security officers, environmental services during the pandemic encountered a lot of human suffering and death up close, but they don't, didn't have that frame of reference of right. sort of knowing what they were getting into, even by small measure. That's a good point. Um, so, before the pandemic, healthcare workers, so for example, nurses, PAs, nurse practitioners, physicians, they see people on a bad day. Very few people come to a hospital when things are going well. That's right. right? Maybe they go to primary care for a checkup when things are going well, if right. then. Um, <laughs> but people are coming to a hospital on a really bad day. It might be their last day. Uh, and that's a lot for, for a healthcare worker to see over time repeatedly very sick babies in the neonatal ICU, very sick folks in the ER and the ICU, surgeries that are very complicated um, that people might have a lasting impact from an injury or a a chronic condition that might take their life. It's a lot to weigh on a human being. Um, And the workload and what you're seeing at work, the paperwork requirements of dealing with very complicated health conditions, regulatory requirements that weighs on healthcare workers, especially those that have clinical documentation. They have to see a patient document in the medical record and they see another patient and another and another. Um, so it's the nature of the work that itself, um, the documentation, the repeated nature of human suffering, um, Sometimes a lot of institutions, even prior to the pandemic, faced understaffing. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of work and few, too few people to do it. Um, and that that weighs on folks. So we saw, you know, rising rates and rising concern about healthcare worker burnout. Uh, so exhaustion, uh, cynicism about the work, 
loss of motivation or interest in the work um, prior to the pandemic and the pandemic worsened those concerns. And we know our colleague at the Office of Wellbeing and Resilience at Mount Sinai, Dr. Jonathan Ripp and um, his team did a survey of healthcare workers at the beginning of the pandemic, right around the time of the first wave in April and May of last year, 2020. And they found at that time that 39% of frontline healthcare workers with patient care responsibilities for COVID patients experienced on self-report measures, symptoms of depression, anxiety, or PTSD. So that's 39% of healthcare workers responding are screening in on self-report tools for anxiety, depression, or PTSD. And actually pre-pandemic burnout increased the risk of experiencing the, the mental health impact to that extent. So if you're burned out before the pandemic, the pandemic worsened your mental health to the point that you're screening in. Yeah, I mean, in this sort of sh- shocking, I think most people don't. I remember, you know, early on when I uh, in private practice, you know, people not asking questions of how it's going and mm-hmm. and um, and often a lot of our stressors are related to you know the business and granted, mm-hmm. and people didn't understand it as a business. But I think also people don't understand that emotional toll of you know, giving people bad news on a mm-hmm. regular basis is is um, pretty tough for sure. Can you speak a little bit about the, you know, folks come into it, uh, phys- maybe selecting up for physicians specifically for one second. I imagine issues of debt, you know, medical school debt and all mm-hmm. those other things add add to the stress. Or do you, do you find that the folks are sort of primed based on their type A-ness because, you know, we, we so it's, so tend to recruit for sort of type A individuals often in healthcare and I think physicians in particular, and then you add to it the the stress of debt and then you add to it the emotional toll of sort of giving bad news. I mean, is, is that is that perhaps a driver as well? Yeah, all of that together, I would say. So the psychosocial, we call it the psychosocial context, right? If you're going into a job knowing, oh, I have to keep this job or I can't pay the bills, um, or I trained for this and I should like it because I trained for it and I can't, I can't do something else now because I've now committed 10 years of my life to training to be a physician or more. Right. Um, and um, right, the, as you said, the type A personality. So, you know, in medicine, you know, I'm not a physician, I'm a psychologist. I've worked with a lot of physicians. There's a focus on doing things well slash doing things perfectly, like the ideal outcome for a patient or, you know, working toward the ideal outcome and minimizing mistakes. Um, and there's, right, there's morbidity and mortality conferences where you focus on what goes wrong and how to change that to do something better. Um, there's very little focus, at least in my understanding, structurally on what goes well, focusing on a patient that has a good outcome, what you did as a team to facilitate the mm-hmm. health of a patient um, and focusing so much on the supposed failures or mistakes or poor outcomes primes you to be thinking about the negative all the time. And the reality is that there's no such thing as a perfection in a messy system. You're dealing with human beings. You're dealing with unpredictability of life. Um, And if you go in thinking, I need to be perfect, for example, you know, someone who's a say, for for example, a physician thinking, I need to be perfect uh, and do you know, everything by the book, when you go into the pandemic, there is no book. 
Right. Like that textbook's not been written yet. Rules are gone. Maybe yeah. it will be, you know, or it is being written <laughs> now. The rules don't apply. The resources are scarce. And you could be left with a really big sense of, I did something wrong. I didn't do enough. I, I even killed my patient by not providing them with X standard of care when that was not the reality of the situation. Right. It wasn't possible. But Death because is, you have that success and achievement right. orientation, right. when you encounter the pandemic, you're coming in with that and you're not changing that orientation. You're seeing everything that you encounter through that lens of, I have to be perfect. I have to do everything possible when almost there's nothing, there's very little you could do, you know, right at the beginning, we didn't know much about yeah. how to treat patients with COVID. Um, there were, there were resource scarcity um, and having that sort of perfection mindset or type A mindset was actually kind of a risk factor mm-hmm. for feeling like you're failing all the time mm-hmm. when the situation is, is messy. It's very messy. You know, and there's a sense of, not only that I need to be perfect, but you know, death is in combined with the fact mm-hmm. that death is not an acceptable outcome, right? Or yeah. our, our job is is to heal. Um, not in not it's not enough to do the best you can, right? There's uh, and there are lots of reasons for that. I mean, some of it is in the culture, of course. Some of it is in the areas of you know even malpractice or things like that to sometimes drive a standard of perfection where error is not tolerated. That's um, that's right. And I think I've spoken to so many healthcare workers and it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, they say I failed because my patient died. Mm-hmm. Healthcare workers responding during the pandemic saying that they failed as a physician, a nurse, a PA um, because their patient died. Yeah. That's tying that's how they see themselves to how their patient is doing. And when yeah. you're encountering an illness that had a very high mortality rate initially, uh, that that math doesn't add up, but it's very hard hitting. I know there's uh, several things written about the culture of seeking help when folks are in trouble and how that isn't really part of the culture, especially if, among physicians, but I think healthcare workers more broadly. And the you know one of the net effects of that is if you have uncontrolled PTSD, depression, anxiety, all the resulting issues from all the things we talked about, the rates of suicide go up and the rates of suicide among healthcare workers are um, usually significantly multiples of the general population. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about some trends in that space, which workers are most susceptible um, and if, you know, things of that nature might be helpful because I'm guessing a lot of folks listening may not have known that. Right. And as you had mentioned, the rates of suicide among physicians in particular are about twice the rate of the general population. Um, there's not terrific data, but that's the data we do have. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of great studies in part because physicians are reluctant to report even in the context of anonymous or confidential research studies that they're not doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there needs to be very careful data, a lot of data on suicide is from national death registries and cause of death is kind of a murky thing to determine. And there are big ambiguities there. So using that solely as a source of data is is complicated. One thing that we do know is that, you know, as part of what we do in the center, healthcare workers at Mount Sinai are able to call us um, and we do an assessment. And we know from that data that folks seeking care at the center who are our colleagues are suffering. About half screen in on standard measures for depression 
and about 16% endorse some degree of suicidal ideation. That's wow. 16% of treatment-seeking healthcare workers uh, that are calling us. Um, and those are of the folks who call us. Right. Um, and it doesn't speak to how folks at other institutions, particularly hard-hit institutions as of you know, September 2021, in other states are doing, you know, COVID, for example, is not as intense here as it is in other states. And right. you know, I imagine that there's a higher level of distress there. Um, but I also want to pivot and talk about folks who aren't physicians. There's elevated rates of suicidal ideation, suicidal thinking among nurses. And we know that from studies before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but essential workers in general, so other folks in the hospital system who might be overlooked or not addressed, at least in interventions or assessments or research studies. So as I mentioned before, security staff, environmental services, front desk staff, they're essential workers too. They had to go to work during the pandemic while others could stay home or work remotely. Yeah. And essential workers, there was a study that was done in August, uh, published in August of 2020, that showed that essential workers had three times greater risk of endorsing suicidal ideation than non-essential workers. Wow. So their rate in that study was 21, 21% of essential workers that were surveyed endorsed considering suicide in the past month wow. and in June of last year, 2020. And it was 8% among non-essential workers. So significantly greater risk. Um, be, and because perhaps they, they had to put themselves sort of on the line, they had to face that exposure every day um, and also manage the other responsibilities of their life. They had to go to work and balance childcare and balance school and pay the bills. Uh, they didn't have the flexibility to to work from home. And socially isolated from their families too. Right. Places, right? Mm-hmm. They, they were socially isolated. There was fears of infecting family members, fears of infecting colleagues with the virus. Uh, if I got sick, am I going to lose my job? How's my family going to... All those fears... Are, are circulating around the mind of an essential worker, um, as well, uh, along with all the stuff they have going on in their lives before the pandemic and all the other stuff unrelated to the pandemic going on in their lives. Uh, so it is incredibly challenging. And I think you know, certainly more has to be done nationally around raising awareness around suicide of healthcare workers in general, uh, because they have a tough job. They had a tough job and a burdensome job um, before the pandemic, in some ways rewarding also. Um, but the pandemic's made that worse. Um, and a lot of institutions face a scarcity of resources around mental health and psychological support. You know, you, you raised such a great point earlier that it, it was, I think, particularly relevant during the pandemic because, you know, I think uh, physicians in general are, I think perhaps still unprepared by the intensity, uh, I think of the emotional distress that they might face given the nature of the job, but they, you know, you have some sense of it, right? You have some mm-hmm. sense when you go into healthcare as a physician or a nurse, even is part of your training that unfortunately illness and death is a part of it. You may not be aware of the full breadth mm-hmm. of it, right? Obviously, because we talked about, I, I think the reality of it is much harsher than the conceptual framework. But I, when we think about other healthcare workers, to your point, they may not have had the same, they certainly in many cases have not had the same training, the same conceptual framework in their mind of what they're getting themselves into when you sign up for, you know, environmental services job or a food service job in healthcare. It's just different. You know, it's not like working in environmental services in, in another place, right? It's 
to your point, it feels like a different level of responsibility that you may not have known you were signing up for, I guess. That, that's right. Um, and we know that the analogy a little bit is to harken back to the 9-11 experience, what we learned there. What we know is that there is an increased risk of PTSD among traditional first responders like firefighters, police officers, EMS, paramedics, but the trajectories and rates of PTSD and psychiatric distress are actually higher in the non-traditional responders who didn't really have that disaster response experience, who went down to be helpful, wanting to be helpful, and because they were needed, like telecommunications workers, construction workers, asbestos cleanup crews, all those folks that went down there and, and volunteers, Red Cross volunteers who went down to be helpful, they didn't have, in a lot of cases, the social support of the unions, perhaps, or of the firehouse, of the police precinct, um, especially those that didn't that weren't part of a union or, or group. Um, and they didn't have that frame of reference or prior training. So they actually are doing worse overall over the past 20 years than the police officers. Um, and the firefighters and paramedics who had some frame of reference, who through their disaster response training in some way encountered death, encountered, had some kind of playbook of like, this happens, you do X, Y, and Z. You rely on your training. Like a lot of firefighters, policemen said, it it sort of was awful, but I relied on my training to get me through. Construction workers didn't have that book to playbook of training to, to lean on. And one, one study that I was part of showed that uh, non-traditional responders, those folks who didn't have that playbook, had four times greater rates of suicide ideation um, than suicidal thinking wow. than police responders. Right. For, yeah. Uh, because and they're just sort of n- no frame of reference for understanding what they encountered and maybe fewer supports. Yeah. yeah that makes a ton of sense. That makes me really concerned about the folks that might be passed by in the healthcare institution. Right. No, that, yeah, absolutely. Jonathan, have you noted uh, either, well, I guess more so in particular since the, the pandemic and the folks that have outreached thus far or in national statistics, any information you want to draw from differences in either gender differences or racial or ethnic differences in either suicidality or uh, resources available or, or trends like that that uh, might be important for folks to know about? One of the trends um, that we see actually in the physician data, um, the, the meta-analyses and other studies that are done, is that female physicians have a slightly increased risk of suicide relative to male physicians. And they also, in general, have an increased risk of depression and PTSD. The risk of PTSD among the lifetime prevalence of PTSD among women is actually double the rates of men and very similar doubled in depression, if not slightly less than doubled for depression. Um, So that's that's a statistic to be aware of. Um, So that's coming to mind. I I, I don't think there's enough data on breakdowns for healthcare workers, particular around race, ethnicity sort of categories. Mm -hmm. Um, But the gender distinction is really important to keep in mind especially when evaluating healthcare workers and like, what are the risk factors that you should be thinking about? Who is at greater risk? And we don't quite know why that is, um, especially for the the rates of suicidal ideation, completed suicide among physicians. Um, But it's something that really healthcare providers should know. Absolutely. 
Um, in, I'm, I'm more familiar with the regulatory environment on physicians. So I'm asking this question in that context, but certainly open to thoughts about other professionals as well. Uh, I, uh, I know that certainly for, uh, licensing boards and things like that uh, for physicians makes the their desire to report and be transparent about mental illness a little bit problematic for folks. Um, obviously, medical boards are governed state by state, and they ask these questions somewhat differently. Um, but you know, we we talked about sort of the lack of tolerance for error as being one piece. But I also I, I have the perception that there is a relatively low tolerance for reporting and being transparent about mental illness or suffering, frankly, from uh, any sort of trauma among physicians from a regulatory and board environment. But I, I don't know if there's data to support that or if that's been in survey data reported as perhaps a, a cause for underreporting. Right. There, there is some association between states with more strict um, reporting requirements or regulatory requirements and help seeking um, mm -hmm. in those states. Um, there, I believe there's an association there. Um, and we know that there's a lot of work. I think there is even legislation at the federal level or advocacy at the federal level around uh, really looking at these questions, looking at the purpose behind these state boards or even healthcare institutions, asking about mental health history, um, asking about being on medication or being in uh, mental health treatment on paperwork that you need for licensure or your paperwork you need for onboarding at a hospital. Mm -hmm. Looking at why are we asking this question? What do we really need to know? What are we really concerned about? Yeah. How can we ask the question such that it doesn't trigger alarm bells in the physician who very well may be suffering and had just been through the pandemic right. in, in saying yes and being transparent um, and not having that well, seemingly well-founded fear that if you check yes, I'm not going to get this job. You know, we've heard similar concerns among police officers. If I'm in treatment, they're going to take my badge and gun away. Right. And has that happened? Absolutely, yes. Right. Does that need to change? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, it's not without um, the, the paranoia is based on some amount of reality. It's based on some amount of reality. And there are some states and some institutions. I, I know Mount Sinai is looking at this carefully. Um, there are some states and institutions that have really looked at these questions um, and made changes and impactful changes in how these questions are asked so that there's honest reporting and that physicians don't feel like they have to lie in order to get a job or they, that they can't get treatment um, in order to get a job. And then they're suffering in the job and they're not doing great on the job um, and they're putting their health they're putting their job over, you know, choosing their job over their health. Yeah, that's a tough, that's a tough choice, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's especially if it's what you know, especially on these mm -hmm. careers, right? Mm -hmm. The folks have been focused for a long time. Uh, you know, I think law enforcement falls into that category where folks are often geared like this is what I've always wanted to do, right? Mm -hmm. they, they go into it for a specific reason and it's hard to reconcile those two things. And the um, reality is that these conditions... And when we ask 9-11 responders, what gets in the way of you seeking help? A lot of them say between a quarter and one fifth say, I want to handle it on my own. Mm -hmm. If I had depression or PTSD, I want to handle it on my own. Um, and the reality is they don't go away. Mm -hmm. it, it just major depression, especially major depression with suicidal thinking 
that just doesn't go away. You don't wake up one day not right. depressed. There's right. not a whole lot you can do um, inclu- up to and including self-prescribing, which should be discouraged. Um, a, a lot of physicians think, for example, you know, I've had medical training. I know ha- how antidepressants work, but especially for moderate to severe depression where suicidal ideation is part of the picture, medication alone is less likely to be effective. You need medication and therapy to give you skills to manage that, um, those, those thoughts and those feelings. Right. There's um, a manifestation in the pandemic that I thought would be worth spending a few minutes on that's different than perhaps 9-11. Uh, we discussed it briefly before we got started on the call. You know, 9-11, there was a concept of the sort of common enemy, right? We all banded together around a, a common good. Uh, there was general agreement as, as to, you know, we need to help these folks. The pandemic feels a little different and whether it's the growth of social media or just the nature of how this is happening, but it's very different and has, it's now well-documented at this point, very, uh, it's been a very divisive issue. Um, And I'm wondering if you've seen a trend among healthcare workers around how they handle things like the ongoing debate on masking perhaps, or vaccines when they're having to care for all these people in the hospital um, that are, especially now as the vaccines have been, uh, more available. There's always the most of the patients that are in the hospital now and dying are unvaccinated. The vast majority. I wonder if if you're seeing that conflict also arise um, and how folks are might be handling that. We've certainly seen that conflict is something we we hear almost on a daily basis. It's the source of, to put it mildly, frustration. Frustration that hospitalizations could be prevented, suffering could be prevented, deaths could be prevented. Um, you know, especially for you know hospitals across the country that are seeing ICUs being overwhelmed by patients with preventable um, infection or preventable hospitalization or, or need for critical care. Um, it's a source of exhaustion and frustration, anger. Um, and the thing that I keep in mind as a psychologist is that it's sort of like sort of like being at Chernobyl, right? It, it's in like being in a radioactive zone. You want to try to minimize the amount of time that you're spending in that hot zone, in that sort of red epicenter. Right. Um, and every patient admitted to an ICU or to an ER is having that healthcare worker or those teams of healthcare workers spend more time in that hot zone where they have personal fears of infecting their family. They have fears for their own life. They're seeing that human suffering up close and it's adding to or even multiplying the the burdens that they faced from prior patients and from last year. Um, It's having an ongoing impact. Um, And that's something that, you know, I'm concerned of. Every new COVID patient is another stress for healthcare workers and healthcare systems. Right. We've seen systems straining and nearing collapse as a whole. And that has a trickle down effect. You know, as you know, you know, for people who, who need hospitalizations and can't get it. Get it. Right. Um, and that's also, you know, I can imagine for a, a physician or a nurse, if you have a patient who needs met ICU care for non-COVID reasons and right. you can't get a bed because they're flooded with COVID patients, knowing yeah. in the back of your mind it could be prevented, that's a huge thing to carry. That's tough. I yeah. can't imagine going to bed at the end of the night with that. Yeah. It's trauma on trauma. Yeah. 
Um, Jonathan, as we're winding down, I, uh, there are lots of other things we could talk about and perhaps maybe a, a different time we can talk a little bit about. Um, I, I know there's increasing literature and groups forming on uh, physicians that have dealt with their own patients that have committed suicide. And that's a whole other area of research, um, but would love to maybe at a future time, we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, I was wondering before we exit, if um, you mind sharing some resources for folks that, and we will put it in the podcast notes, but some general uh, resources that folks might find online or elsewhere if they're struggling. Yeah. So one of the things that I would just say by broad strokes is that if you're a healthcare worker struggling with thoughts of suicide, one, you're not alone. Many other healthcare workers in the United States abroad are struggling with that level of suffering and thoughts of suicide. So you're not the only one feeling that mm -hmm. and help is available. We know that there are many resources available uh, that work if you engage them, just like if you had a physical health condition like diabetes or a broken bone, we know that there are treatments for depression and suicide that are effective if you engage in them and give it a try. And it's about the trusting relationship that you have with your providers. I would also say that there's the National Suicide Prevention Helpline, which we can put the, the phone number in the, in the notes. Um, there's SAMHSA, uh, which has a resource that you can engage in to help bridge to care. And if you're in New York City, um, there's NYC Well, which has a text line um, and a website and a chat service. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, we've been speaking today with Jonathan DePiro, who is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the School of Medicine here at Sinai um, and the clinical director for the Center for Stress, Resilience, and Personal Growth. Thanks, Jonathan, for your time. Thank you. If, uh, thanks for listening. And if you have future ideas for a pod podcast, excuse me, please email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.